welcome to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change, where we bring you stories of real people working to address real issues. I am your host, Shimon Cohen. Thank you to FIU's Disability Resource Center for providing transcription services. In this episode, I talk with Enlace Chicago's Violence Prevention Manager, Alicia Martinez, Street Outreach Worker, David Tiny Estrada, and Social Work Educator and Clinical Supervisor, Shipra Parik, in the Little Village community in Chicago. They talk about the work they do in their community with families and youth by engaging in assistance services, counseling, conflict mediation and restorative justice, youth leadership and advocacy, anti-adultism, school transformation with restorative justice and a trauma-informed approach, and much more. Alicia explains that Little Village is a primarily Latinx community that is resilient and hardworking, but deals with structural barriers that affect basic needs, survival, employment, health care, and opportunities. David discusses how COVID-19 is currently the biggest challenge facing the community, and how Enlace has shifted how they work to continue to support their community, from phone calls with youth to organizing food distributions. Shipper talks about the increased gentrification in the community's response, specifically supporting local businesses rather than larger corporations that move in. Alicia explains that one of the ways COVID-19 has hit Little Village hard is that most residents are considered essential workers and have been exposed to greater risk, resulting in families losing loved ones. We talk about how Chicago often gets talked about nationally in a negative way, and David shares a story of how black and brown communities came together for peace and to support each other. Alicia, David, and Shipra all talk about what they love about this work and how Enlace Chicago models within their organization the kind of world they want to see. We also talk about the election. I hope this conversation inspires you to action. So before we get into the episode, I'm so excited to tell you all about this episode's sponsor, Designs by T. T is a Brooklyn-based social worker who's created a line of t-shirts and accessories to disrupt places and spaces and the fashion industry. This t-shirt line is doing what no other social worker has done before fusing creativity with art, and she's managed to create a local buzz. She gives 10% of all sales towards purchasing essentials for children and families in a local shelter. She's got a social work collection, a socially conscious collection, a royalty collection, a kid's collection. You've got to check her out at Designs by T, that's T-E-E, designsbyt3.com. Check out the link in the show notes and take $5 off your next t-shirt order with the code TPOD5. That's T-E-E-P-O-D and the number 5, TPOD5. And now, here's the interview. Hey, Alicia. Hey, David. Hey, Shipra. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Really happy to have you all to talk about the work you do with Enlace Chicago. And, you know, to just get started, could you say a little bit about what you do? So um, my name is Alicia and I am the violence prevention manager. In my role, I oversee a group of uh, clinical social workers. So our uh, social workers, they work in a school setting providing one-on-one counseling. And then we have 
obstetric-based counselors to provide more of the clinical case management while providing mental health for our uh, for our team. And in that, I also do a lot of linkages between our own organization, our schools uh, in Chicago, and organizations to make sure that our partnerships are flowing and that there's access to our clinicians. Nice. Okay, so uh, yeah, my name is David. Uh, I work for the street outreach team at Enlace Chicago. Uh, my role there is uh, I'm part of a of a team of outreach workers that work in the Little Village community. Uh, we work mostly with at risk uh, youth, men, uh, boys and girls, men and women. Um, we do have a certain age group that we're supposed to work with, but we we don't turn anybody down. Um, my job consists of just using the network um, and our community partner community partners to uh, provide services for um, our youth. Um, and also we, uh, do a lot of conflict mediation and use restorative justice and peace circles to bring, um, victims and, uh, you know, the, the, the other, uh, the victims and the offenders together to see if we can bring uh, some sort of compromise. Um, so there's not any violence that occurs. And my name is Shipra and I have a couple of roles for Enlace. I provide clinical support and supervision for the violence prevention team. And what that basically means is I get to speak with everybody um, on a regular basis. And we, we talk about the work. We talk about the impact of the work and provide kind of um, that clinical space um, that people need to process all of what they're handling. I'm also a social work educator. And what that means is that I am responsible for educating the next generation of social workers who are going to go out into the field. Um, and so I take that very seriously as well. And it really uh, is an important part of teaching for me that I can ground it in work that's happening on the ground as well. Yeah, for sure. That's I'm sure the examples you can bring in to your classes are really impactful. Yes, I would agree. It. I think um, you know social workers today, and we can all think about how we were trained and educated. But it's so important to have examples of what work looks like and the different ways you can make an impact. And so it's it's really um, a real honor for me to work with other people like Alicia and David um, to kind of be part of a, a community team and to feel like, you know, the experiences that we have supporting youth um, don't go unnoticed and that people can really be inspired from the survival, really, of the youth we work with. So what would you say are some of the unique challenges facing the youth and the overall communities that you work with? So to give a little bit of um, understanding of Little Village, we are a community-based organization. So we mainly, all our focus areas are concentrated in the Little Village community. We're located in the southwest side of, of the city and it's predominantly Latinx, Mexican-American families. So with that, there's a lot of generation. Um, generational families who immigrated to to the United States and settled in Chicago. And with that, there's a lot of mixed status families. So I think with, with that, some of the challenges that we we see with all the strengths that we have in our community. So our community is very hardworking. They're very, they have a lot of family values, um, a lot of resilience, but at the same time, because of so many structural challenges, um, policies that, that impact our, our community. There's been a lot of like um, a, a lot of 
generational trauma too. And so in my role, like I and in with our counselors, what we do a lot of is that direct intervention with families and with youth. But so one of the biggest challenges is really addressing those structural challenges that continue to make us like continue to do this work. So although we're working one-on-one with you, with families, with the community, the structural barriers are still there. I, I think that um, one of the biggest um, challenges that our community faces right now is is the actual COVID virus and the way that we've had to um, sort of sort of implement um, a different way of doing um, you know our work with our youth uh, because we can't be in direct contact with them right now. So we've had to switch to like using using the phone and social media to um, you know to uh, engage them and address them and help them out in any way we can um, because of the COVID virus. A lot of our youth. Um, and we've had family members who have are unemployed or have lost jobs. And so, you know, trying to get them financial help, but also um, food. Um, we partnered with the local organization that's a community partner of ours. Um, and twice a week, we, um, we, we meet at their spot and uh, they give us a list of uh, food uh, addresses to pass out food to the people in the community. So we're doing our best right now just to help them out as far as, you know, financial wise and, uh, and also with food. And I think, you know, those are examples of ways in which all the work is really grounded in the community, in the neighborhood of Little Village. One of the things I think about in terms of like what makes the work specific is gentrification. Um, over the time, you know, we certainly have all had examples. We've experienced them together of, um, you know, businesses trying to come in to the community and then being able to sort of in a, in a kind of like in a radical act of really pride for the community, support local businesses and encourage those kind of businesses that come in out of gentrification or financial opportunity to, and just encourage them to go because people want to support businesses that Put money back into the community and you know latino neighborhoods tend to gentrify much faster than any other neighborhoods and we can definitely feel that um, in little village there's sort of this false um, racialized sense of you know false comfort that i think a lot of um you know uh, white people and young adults kind of feel um, coming into the community and so um, we even heard a radio report um, a couple of years ago that kind of highlighted the Little Village community as a really great place to live. But it was a very interesting report because it was really targeting a primarily a, like a white uh, uh, listenership. And when they were asked about crime, they said, oh, you know, the gangs don't mess with you if, if they can tell you're not from there. So that's pretty much just an invitation to people to come in and gentrify. And, um, you know, we've, we've all felt that pressure and tension of just how devastating that would be. Um, the local grocery stores that have been serving families right now that people can walk to that they can turn to in these times of need um, that have had you know toilet paper long after like before all the big stores ran out these little neighborhood stores were saying no we got it we got you so i think you know that's a that's a big concern so for me it feels a lot like it's two sides of the coin in one side our community is that is struggling um with the pandemic a lot of these these underlying issues just surfaced up and we are struggling to a lot of our families, they don't even, they, they didn't qualify for a stimulus check. They don't qualify for unemployment. And because they're essential workers, our community is made of 
almost all essential workers, they have to go out. They, they were exposed to the virus. There was huge loss, like, like David mentioned, of, fa of family members to, to the virus. And many of them were uninsured. So it's layers and layers of, of challenges that our community faces. But then in the other side of the coin, gentrification is bringing in people and, and, and uh, not letting our, the, our community be accessible to the residents that it's always been home to. Mm. You know, I mean, I don't think we can do an interview with you all in Chicago without talking about how Chicago gets used in the national media and by this current administration, right? I mean, I can't do justice to interviewing you with the, without us having that conversation. So since you all are out, like, are doing this work in the community, and then you see what gets, you know, you see what's said and you see all these stereotypes, right, that get put out there about Chicago. Like, what do you, what comes up for you when you see all that? For me, it's a lot of frustration and a lot of um, using our community as a, 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 uh, devi a device to, to, um, to like, for the, the uh, decisiveness, like, to separate. Um, because in our community, there's a lot of, the only a, a very glimpse part is shown, but there is so much more that isn't shown about Chicago. And I, I want to just give David uh, the floor because he has a really good example of how our community just really unified in, in these really trying times. Um, I want to say it was like the end of May, the beginning of June. Um, there was um, some big protests downtown, which turned into looting. Um, the mayor raised the bridges. She uh, flooded the downtown with police force, which left other communities in the city of Chicago without anybody to protect them. Um, and so what happened was when she raised the bridges, the looters decided that they wanted to come to the neighborhoods and loot. And a lot of them went and destroyed their own communities um, out of fear, you know, out of oppression, out of a whole bunch of other things that that we could get into, but but I won't. But um, they came to the neighborhood and they tried to loot some stores in the neighborhood, and the neighborhood guys were not having that. So they they stood up they stood up to the looters. Um, there was a few um, fights. Uh, the police were involved. You know, arrests were made. Um, but the but the city didn't see it as a, a community member standing up for the businesses in their community. Um, they, they, they turned into a racial, uh, like a race war, you know, basically, um, several people were on social media, um, you know, people who are popular in Chicago, uh, musicians, rappers, a few other people saying how they were going to come to the village and flood it. And they were going to basically like harm people. Um, you know, there was over three days, there were several skirmishes back and forth. You know, there was some incidents that occurred, um, Nobody, nobody got killed. Nobody died, you know, which is the good part. There, there was people injured, you know, vehicles and stuff like that. But what we did was we reached out to um, our network of other outreach workers and community partners across the city. And we got them to unite with us and bring people from their community into our community, um, and, you know, and, and solidarity and show peace. So what the, a lot of the local businesses were boarded up. Um, neighborhood people um, and some of our uh, organization uh, people uh, painted murals on, on all these boards to make the community look 
a little bit better because everything was boarded up and it looked at abandoned. Um, so we did a big unity uh, gathering at the park. Um, there was probably maybe three or four hundred people out there. We served food. We had music. We gave away uh, T-shirts which said uh, Stronger Together. And it had like the map of Chicago with the different neighborhoods on it, which was really cool. Um, basically, what we did was just utilize the people that we knew in the streets, uh, key individuals to come together and just show peace. Um, and since the media wouldn't cover it, we flooded everything with social media, our own Instagram, Facebook. You know, I think it was Twitter. Um I got a bunch of calls from guys telling me that I was famous, you know, which was like really cool, but I'm, I'm not in it for the fame, you know, I'm in it for the results. You know, my job is more of a passion to me than it is a job, you know. Um, I was one of those young men in the streets, um, who did a lot of wrong things and, you know, um, so I suffered a lot of bad consequences. So my thing is just use, use everything that I can, um, that I've been through my experiences to help lead people in the right direction. Yeah. And to David's point, I, I think there was a lot, there was this, pinning one, pinning black and brown communities against each other. And we were able to show that with unification, with th that dialogue that we we can unify and really understand where we, where we were coming from and really show that to, 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 to outwardly. Whereas they were trying to divide us, we unified. And, and I think that, that, that was um, like David said, like something very powerful. I think that the, the best thing that occurred after the big, The big rally that we did was that other local organizations saw that it was safe to come back out in the community because a lot of people were terrified. We were getting phone calls from people asking if we could escort them to the store. People were calling us saying that, you know, they had African-American friends that lived in the community that they were scared to come out and come shopping. And we did our best to escort everybody around. Even some of the neighborhood guys were like, look, this isn't about that. You know, we got you. Don't worry about that, you know. And so um, it was a really great thing because I think it gave everybody that that feeling of, of of safety that they were able to make more marches do more protests in a peaceful manner you know and it was a beautiful thing because now they were drawing attention to a lot of problems that are always overlooked and that nobody ever talks about and i think that's the difference too between like the city of chicago like the, the spaces and the places where if you visit you will see and then the neighborhoods that you may not come around to visit you know the south and west sides are really vibrant communities and Um, this kind of stuff happens all the time. This happens daily, that we rely on each other and we figure it out. And I think Chicago's tough in that way. And anywhere you live, you know that that happens. And I will say in my community too, I don't live in Little Village. Um, I live in South Shore. And, you know, I saw the same thing happen there. There's people coming together in the community to do cleanups after damage was done to businesses and people helping each other out, neighborhoods. Uh, neighbors, you know, doing grocery shopping for each other because people don't have cars and a lot of the businesses closed down. And so, you know, that's, that's, that is so many people's stories and kind of the rebuilding that had to happen after, um, you know, a lot of the pain that people suffered all through the summer. So to me, and I think to us, we feel like that's just, that's just Chicago. Like that's just what happens, whether you hear about it or not. Yeah. Well, people need to hear about it, you know, and, uh, I'm so glad you're here to talk about it and counter that dominant, you know, misinformation and destructive narrative that's constantly getting put out there, you know. Um, something I wanted to ask you was, you know, what do you what do you love about the work that you do? I guess I can go first on that one. I, I what I love about the work that I do is that I get to utilize all the mistakes that I made in life 
to use those examples to show um, young men and women that if they make the wrong choices in life, that there's going to be consequences to those choices. Um, like I said before, my job is is a passion to me. It's not it's not work. You know, um, I, I was a person, like I said, who ran the streets. I, I was incarcerated, you know, several times. Um, and the last time that I was there, I really um, utilized every program that was there at the institution to better myself. Um, I enrolled myself in school. So for the whole um, six years that I was there, I did nothing but schooling. I came out with 16 certificates. Um, and, and a lot of the, a lot of times when I meet young men and women, and I talk about the things that I've been through, you know, um, you know, I know a lot of their, their family members cause I was born and raised in the neighborhood where I work, but those, those papers that I show them, you know, um, it's a lot, it means a lot to me and a lot to them because I, I proved to them that I was in a, I was in a horrible situation and I made the best of it. And, you know, they have so many resources that we can provide for them. That they shouldn't have to go through that, you know, to to be out there and feel alone and afraid, um, you know. So I just try to use everything in, in, in the toolbox to put it to work to to better the community and to change people's mindsets. David talked about the the lived experience and being born and raised in a little village. I think that is something that is very common throughout our organization, throughout Enlace, throughout our community. We have a really strong sense of community. And I think that's what I love most about this work is that this work is really hard. As Sherpa says, like we we all as a violence prevention department have her to support us to process everything we see on the ground. Um, but that 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 built community always sustains us doing this work. We we are a team. We always look out for one another. We're always checking in on each other. And I think that's one of the things that I enjoy most of, about the work within our team, but also our community. Our community, they know us. They appreciate what's the support that we provide for them. I think they really appreciate that we honor their, their lives and, uh, and, and, and their journey and, and, and do this work through their, their strengths and not through their deficits. Um, so for me, like this is seeing the progress when, when we work with our youth, seeing them grow as, uh, um, throughout the years has been really rewarding for me. Yeah, I, I agree. I think, you know, we're also representing like a much bigger team than just the three of us here. So just shout out to them because they'll listen to this. And, you know, it takes everybody. And I think for me, you know, like I said, I'm not from the little village community, but I was invited into this space. And that's something that's really important is being invited into spaces rather than kind of taking up space in spaces where you're not from. And so I really try to use that example with my students as well of like what it means to be really invited in. And even though there are differences, you know, I'm still from a I'm still first generation from an immigrant family. And um, I could have probably used social workers like who we have when I was a kid. And so it's really nice to sort of feel like you get to be seen in the work you do. And it really does sort of feel like a family, um, you know, fights and fights and everything. I love hearing those po- the po- those positive stories because I know the work is hard. I mean, I'm not in it like you all are. Right. And um, I think it's important to highlight like that love, you know, and that passion. I also want to, you know, you talked about, I mean, there's so much you all do, right, that we could talk about. One thing you talked about were these structural challenges, this systemic oppression that exists that affects people in the community, right? That you're confronted with as you work to together to get through what you get, right? Life. <laughs> and 
you know, what's, what's the biggest challenge in terms of actually like real social change? Like, what are the biggest bear, like, what are those barriers that you feel with that? I'm going to just flat out say that it's access to resources. I think our community, um, because of these structural challenges that exist, that have, have been generational, the access to resources is, is definitely a huge challenge. Um, I'll, as a mental health practitioner, there's very little mental health support in the community. And one of the reasons why I decided to become a school-based counselor, I started out as a school-based counselor, was because in, there's not so many avenues in our community to get mental health, but one of those avenues at that time was the school-based counseling program. And so to think about that, there is such limited access to mental health and the need of it, it is really daunting to me at times. I, I think similarly to that, but specifically targeting kind of the youth is like, they need to see that there's options for them. They need to know what they're, why, why is it worth it to you to stay in school? It's not just to make, you know, these adults in your life happy, but it's got to be connected to something that feels real for them. Um, something they can see themselves doing or a future they feel they can have. And that goes right to structural resources. If they don't see the jobs, if they don't see those opportunities, why are they going to stay in school? They can, they can earn more money. They can do other things. And so that disinvestment, I think, just kind of ignoring, you know, for generations, really, like not investing in the kinds of businesses that the community could really use and benefit from. Literally, there are so many activities that the team does with youth, you know, rock climbing, I mean, you know, back before the pandemic, but rock climbing and, and just um, camping and trying out new things that, you know, city kids have never done. And they find a way to love everything, which just goes to show their kids. And they just want to try stuff and, and, and feel good at something and, and be challenged and laugh and tease each other. And um, so I think about, I think a lot about the youth and what kind of future they're looking at. And, and to your point, Shepard, I think a lot of the youth in our community since a very young age are told that they cannot amount to a lot, that they have very limited options. And because of those limited options, they tend to, they, they, they'll look for, a, a sense of belonging, a sense of, like I belong here. I need, this is where I feel at home. So I think part of, you know, the, the beauty of uh, at least the, our program is that they, they are, it, it's a hybrid mental health program, but it also does mentorship. So it's, it's a, a, an opportunity to experience things that, um, they may normally not have the opportunity to experience. And I think Tiny can talk a little bit more about, about his, his work too with, with that. So to me, the biggest, the biggest challenge, uh, in terms of um, real social um, change is that um, in the past, communities have always been separated. You know, that's segregation in the city of Chicago is a big thing. You know, I feel that they keep people separated, you know, by, by borderlines and streets because they know that if you keep people separated, their voice won't be heard. You know, um, a lot of people... And in the, in the like in the community that I'm, I'm from and the, and the surrounding communities, it's it's normal for them to feel oppressed, for them to feel that you know that you know there's no hope, you know the lack of resources, the lack of education, you know the lack of jobs, you know all these things are normalized in in our community in our society with these young youth, and so they to them they they have the I don't care attitude, you know, and in in order for us to to really bring about social change, we have to come together. We have to voice, you know, 
our struggles, um, the things that we feel that aren't right, and 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 be able to come together and 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 make noise about those things so that people start to realize that we are tired of going through this stuff, you know, for for decades already, and 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 something has to happen that to bring people together so that the change will benefit everybody. Not just not just one or two people or a certain group, but benefit everybody that needs that needs help. You know, you were talking about the youth you work with, right? And obviously, they're at like the forefront, right? Of the center of what you do is is them, right? And I'm wondering about um, how do they, you know, do they help run any of the programming? You know, how are they? How are their ideas and, and their voice, you know, incorporated into like the leadership of the organization and what you do as an organization? Okay, so on my behalf, I, I try to, re- whenever I plan a trip with the youth or we want to go out to eat somewhere or to go watch a movie when we were able to, I would always let them make those decisions, you know. I would let them talk amongst each other, figure it out what they wanted to do, and then we would just take it from there because I felt that was the best way because a lot a lot of times these young men and women are always told no for everything. You know, no, you're not going to amount to nothing. No, you can't be part of this. No, you're too wild. You know, stay away from us, you know. So my thing is, like, to give them that power to make those decisions, even though they're so small, all those little, they're just small steps they're turning into bigger steps later on, you know. So my thing is just always include them. And, and I never tell um, a youth that I'm going to do something and don't do it because that is like the worst thing that you can do to a young person and say that you're going to do something for them and don't because they're so used to everybody else already denying them that it just sort of like pushes you away from them, you know. So as Shepard mentioned, our organization, like we are only a very small fraction of our representation. We're only um, here from the Violence Prevention Department, but our organization is compromised of four other departments, and one of those is the Organizing and Advocacy Department. And so they have a youth leadership academy that really teaches them the, the, the history of the of of Chicago the history of, of policies and and they work to 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 learn how to advocate in Springfield advocate in the community really do that that uh, front front uh, work but even in our program like we we've been very intentional about creating spaces for our youth to build their leadership skills so one of the um, programs that um, we have in in the in our mental health team is the youth youth uh, youth led uh, group, and our youth led group is a consists of youth from our who used to be in our caseloads who ha- were connected to us in one way or another, and this is kind of like the transition for them. So they uh, learn how to build community, learn how to to facilitate workshops and and, and these topics that really interest them. They're the ones that, that are facilitating those conversations. They do a a um, an end of celebration where they invite the community to firsthand talk about what they experience as you from from little village because it's one thing to hear it from us like oh this is what our youth experience but it's another from them to directly talk about their 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 their, their lived experience and, and what mental health means to them yeah and i would you know i'm just thinking you know here we are sort of talking all about the youth and they're not here to talk about themselves and represent themselves and that's like that is a real commitment, I think, on this team and um, this organization to kind of to like you're doing to kind of raise up and uplift youth voices and have them be really active participants in their own work, 
one of the first conversations we ever had, Alicia, you probably, I don't know if you remember, we were talking about participatory work and we talked about anti-adultism and adultism, of course, just being, you know, this idea that just by virtue of being older than them, we know better. Um, Cause when you really kind of enact anti-adultist um, ideas and, and when you kind of implement that, you are also committing to being anti-racist, anti-sexist, anti-homophobia, um, anything that's oppressive, you're, you're committing to, to undoing that too, because it's all under this umbrella of the things that happen to our kids. And so I think, you know, that commitment to them really feeling like this is their space and back, you know, when they could come to this, to the office, they would, you know, meeting them up out wherever they are, talking to them, going to their school, um, you know, home visits and, and whatever needs to be done. And, and that's the thing I think of the most right now is that's such a loss for all of us. Um, but for them is just that separation, you know, not being able to see each other in person. Um, I mean, it's just nice seeing you all in person too, <laughs> kind of in this way. So I think we all miss that connection. And, um, and I know that that's a, that's a huge commitment that this team has. Yeah. And, you know, we can always in the future get some youth from your program if you want and do another episode and really have them talk about what's going on, you know, from their perspective too. You know, I'd love to do that. That would be amazing. The The work you do is near and dear to my heart because I started doing street outreach. That's how I got into this work as a whole. And um, I helped open up a youth center. And so, you know, and it was it was like they were in charge. Like they helped run the program. You know, they had shifts and they would come and they would like, and that's what made it work, right? That's what made it work. If, if we didn't have that, the place, it wouldn't have, ha- it wouldn't have worked. It was their it was their space. I wanted to kind of explore some of what you talked about with the services you do or the you know the programs you have in terms of um restorative justice and what that looks like in terms of like if you maybe had you know kind of like a way to talk about and put it into so someone listening can actually imagine seeing what that looks like in action, you know. And you kind of talked about it with that example in a way of like what was happening in the in the community and how people came together, right? But maybe if you could talk about like a way you use it in your program too. Okay, so um, we we do we do a safe haven every Saturday, or, or we were doing a safe haven every Saturday before the pandemic uh, happened. Uh, so we would meet every Saturday with our youth, um, and they could bring their friends or neighborhood kids could also come. Um, and we would just open up the office to let them use our computers, uh, to, to watch movies on our, on our, our projection screen, to play the video games that we had on our other TVs. Uh, we had, uh, set up a recording studio for music. So that was another program that we did. Uh, we had a, a tutoring program also, but basically, um, my work with the youth, I always try to instill in them to be respectful to one another, to, you know, to respect not just like people's opinions, but also their personal property and their personal space as well. And, uh, one day one of our youth was, um, he was on live on his phone and one of the other young men in the office didn't like that. And so he asked them to stop recording him. And the one young man took it as a joke because they're all friends, you know. So he, he laughed it off and he kept filming everybody. And the, the young man who didn't want to be filmed got up and he pushed the phone out of his hand. And, um, you know, we, we were all sitting at the table when this happened. So 
we kind of just, you know, everything got quiet. We kind of looked at each other. I'm like, all right, guys, let's, you know, we need to take it to the table. Let's sit down at the table and let's, let's figure out what went on. So, you know, um, a bunch of the other young men helped me, uh, you know, they actually mediated the, the, the situation themselves, but they did it in a way that they used the things that I had instilled in them. So they, they got an arbitrator, you know, the young man who was there to like keep both sides from, you know, arguing, um, the other young men, of course, you know, everybody gave good feedback and good information to those two young men. You know, they, they let the young man know that he should have asked permission before he was recording anybody. Um, they let the other young man know that, you know, be, you have to be respectful to people's personal space and their property, you know, that it was not right for him to knock the phone out of the young man's hand. Um, you know, they both agreed with what, what the other young men told them. They they shook hands, they apologized, and they went right back to playing video games and listening to music and everything was cool. But it was just great to see them in that setting utilize things that we instilled in them to solve the issue on their own without having me or, or my other coworker actually have to really get involved and sort of like separate them or like, you know, just try to tell them, you know, the, the, the right and wrong part. It was great that they were they, they they comprehend, you know, the things that we try to instill in them, and they they utilize that to help out their their peers, which was really great. So I um I really like that that approach that that you know he built the report, and it's because of the report that our our uh, our workers have that that they're able to have these really awesome outcomes on our end, like like especially with the school based counselors. One of the things that we really strive to do um, is work holistically with our youth. And so in one of those things that we really um, are very intentional about is creating um, schools that feel safe to them. So for the most part, schools in, in CPS, um, they, they've always been very punitive approach to discipline our, our youth. What we're really trying to do is work with schools in, in, in supporting them and providing a social justice, restorative justice uh approach to to discipline with, with the youth and so one of the ways that the counselors do it and, and they're marvelous is they have those conversations with teachers like understand so the teachers understand that when students react in their classrooms when they act out it's not personal against them it might be other factors so it's really working with with the teachers working with administrators to have that trauma-informed understanding of, of what are you what are you facing and I think when we talk about trauma informed, you know, there's a lot of ways people understand that. But one of the ways I see at unless a that we are like really trying to uphold that is like also what happens between the staff. So if we could just talk about that for a second, because I think, you know, when you do this work, it is it is it's a lot. It's not just a nine to five. It, it kind of setting boundaries and kids don't really care what time it is when they need to reach out to. So that happens a lot. Um, weekends, evenings. And I think for the staff, it's like, you've got to get really good at setting boundaries and understanding like, where does my, my life begin? And where does my work like have to end? And how do I do that in a way that's respectful? And all of that balancing takes, can take a toll. So I think what's important is that I also see that trauma informed lens being practiced at work. I have never worked at a place been involved with a place that treats people so humanly um, in times of need. You know, if you if there's a, some personal need, you can't make it to a meeting, whatever it is, you're going to be late to a call. People are just like, it's fine, whatever you need, whatever you need to do. And I just have never seen that level of 
human understanding, which to me really embodies this trauma-informed lens, not just like with the kids and with our families, but like as a staff. And of course, it's challenging. And we get into it sometimes and people have really strong personalities and, and stand up for what they believe in. But I, I, I'm very inspired by kind of the level of commitment to like people's humanity coming first in the job. And I think it's really, um, to, to your point, Shepard, um, a lot of our staff, a lot of uh, the people who work at Enlasted, they're very passionate. They grew up in Little Village. They have strong connections to Little Village. So it's really hard to really set those boundaries. And I think as as um, social workers, as people who are in, in, in that forefront, it's really important for us to set set those examples of what it means to set boundaries and what it means to say, like, it, it's, if I'm not able to do X, Y, Z all the time, it's okay. Um, because I think, as David says, like, sometimes because we grow up in the neighborhood, because we we have strong connections to our families, to it's really hard to turn off your your, your work your, your work hat. You know, something I wanted to talk about before we wrap things up is this episode is going to be published at the start of November, right? And like right after this episode is published, we're going to have a major election. And I just, you know, I just wanted to kind of, I think it's an interesting thing because we're talking now and we don't know what the outcome of that election is going to be. Like either way, depending on the outcome of the election, you know, either way, like, what does that mean for your community and the work you're doing? Well, in my, in my opinion, I don't, I don't think that it's going to matter on the ground level. You know, we, we're, we're so used to dealing with the, the lack of resources and the lack of um, help that, you know, we utilize private funders to help, you know, us continue to, you know, facilitate our programs and things of that nature. I think that, you know, we've been through the last four years of, uh, you know, the person in office and we've survived. And I think that we will still continue to do that. You know, just um, just, you know, you got to just tighten the belt buckle, tighten your shoelaces and keep moving. That's all. To Tiny's point, I think uh, it the feeling may feel like, let's say that there is another person, different person in office, it may, they, it, there might be a sense of relief, but at the ground level, those those structural challenges that our community faces, they're still going to face. They're still going to have to fight poverty. At the end of the day, that's what it is, that, that the poverty is still going to be there. The lack of, of employment, the lack of a safety network, the lack of support for our youth, it's still going to be there. So for our for us it, we continue to advocate for those structural changes advocate for um more funding and more resources to come to our neighborhood yeah until we commit to really commit to kind of ending poverty as a country um and as as individual cities and states you know uh, there's going to be a huge disconnect between elections and politics and kind of what the work needs to look like um there's as David said, a lot of, you know, segregation in Chicago historically with redlining and then some of these other policies that have drastically impacted education, for example. And if you look at the sort of wealthiest tier and the, um, the lowest income tier, um, the point difference between them is growing actually in terms of how they score in school. And it's, it's shameful that as a city with resources and in a country with resources, um, that we are willfully, um, neglecting neighborhoods like Little Village um, and the families in them. 
because so so to, I think you know we're all pretty much in agreement on the fact that the work is going to have to be ongoing and um, continuing to work with our partners, continuing to survive as Enlace has done in the last four years incredibly well um, and thrive even. And so um, election or not, the work will continue. Yeah, that community-based resilience that you speak about, you know, in the face of historical and ongoing oppression, right? Like, I mean, that's what I hear you talking about when when I hear that answer from the three of you. I think that if people really want to, you know, kind of support this work, um, committing to anti-poverty programs is a big part of it. You know, we talk about violence and, and violence in uh, programs with the, you know, kind of the title violence in them get funding because nobody wants violence. But, you know, really what's at the root of it is people suffering. Um, and I think we see that across all the events that have happened in Chicago this summer, um, in individual communities well before this summer and kind of in the work in Little Village. And so, you know, people are suffering and because there's not an investment in um, access to basic needs. Um, we're not even talking about things that are, um, you know, beyond that, but, you know, things like internet and, and there have been some really good, you know, movement made, especially because of the pandemic that's forced some of this stuff, um, access to internet, for example, which really should have been implemented well before this, well before right. school was virtual. Um, but, you know, I think that would be one commitment we would, we would share with anyone listening to think about how to support anti-poverty programs where you live. Yeah, I wanted to ask you all, you know, since you're on this platform, you know, what else you wanted to put out there before we wrap stuff up? You know, we've covered a lot of different things, but, you know, I really want to give you that this space to bring up any, you know, put out anything you want to put out there. I think just as Shepard says, like supporting and advocating for th those basic needs that, in, that that should be human rights, like affordable housing, like health care, affordable child care, things that should be basics that, that we continue to advocate for, for things um, that, that will support the, the, the safety network of our families. Sometimes our families don't even have living wages. And that in itself is necessary to be able to 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 get an education to to have safety in your neighborhood i would say to you know anybody out there who's doing work on the front lines who is nurturing and and stirring things up in their community and participating in their um, catalyzing change you know doing any of that work is to take time for you yourself and to really create a culture of healing and humanity in your workplace, because it's going to really help sustain you to do the thing that you care about the most, um, taking care of each other and really having time to go on a retreat once in a while to enjoy things together, um, not just kind of how to navigate a work problem or a dilemma, because um, that's important too, but to take that time to kind of be humans together and be people together and connect. And to any students listening, you know, social workers or future social workers, really thinking about the investment you're making in the communities where you're working. How would it change if you lived where you worked? How would it change if you engaged in the same sort of resources that your clients did? And I think that's another thing that Enlace really models is so much, so many of the staff live where they work. They live next door to their clients and they're, and they're, we don't call them clients, youth participants, participants. Um, and I think it makes all the difference because it, it, creates that community feeling 
and to any kids listening, you know, you matter. Yeah, I just I just want to say that um, some to just reflect off of Shipra, I, I have a big thing with like students, you know, like any student that's going to school for social work or any type of, you know, field out there that where you're going to help somebody, don't give up. Stick with it because we need you. You know, we need we need everybody we can to, to stand up and help be accountable, you know, and, and just get more work done because uh, there's not a lot of us in the field right now. And the more help we, we, we can get, the better, you know, and also just um, if you're if you're concerned about things in your community, look for look for an organization, a nonprofit organization in your neighborhood or in your city that that does work, you know, in the community and just volunteer there, you know. Get your feet wet a little bit and see what the work is really about, you know, so that you know what you're getting yourself into. Um, and, you know, just always remember, don't give up, you know, stay positive and keep moving forward. Well, I want to thank you all so much for coming on the podcast and thank you all for doing the work in the community. No, thank you for having us. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Doing the Work, Frontline Stories of Social Change. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Please follow on Twitter and leave positive reviews on iTunes. If you're interested in being a guest or know someone who's doing great work, please get in touch. And thank you for doing real work to make this world a better place. Peace.